0: Well, it's a really important day in our sermon series because it's the last day of a 13-week sermon series where we started all the way back in Romans 12, verse 9 on this amazing section of Scripture where the Apostle Paul, one of the first leaders of the church, unpacks what it means for us to be followers of Christ, not just in faith, but in action. And in 13 verses... He uses 38 verbs to describe the activity of you and me as followers of Jesus as we put into practice the teachings of Jesus. So here we are in verse 21, the last of this entire series. If it's your first time, I want to say welcome to you. You can go on our YouTube channel and get caught up on the sermon series. Start with the sermon Love Without Hypocrisy. That's Romans 12:9, And Paul right here in verse 21 says a sweeping statement that summarizes all that he said before, but also can't be understood without understanding that which he had just said. It not only summarizes, but all that comes before. It helps us understand what he is saying in this sweeping verse, this conclusive statement in verse 21 of Romans 12. I'm gonna read it and afterwards, I'm gonna ask a question and you will respond with thanks be to God. So Romans 12, verse 21, Paul writes, Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. This, my friends, is the reading of God's word. As we always say, thanks be to God. Okay, leave those Bibles open. We're going to unpack this. This is going to be a longer sermon. Hopefully you have a notebook, you have a phone perhaps in front of you, maybe a laptop to take some notes. We're going to dive deep into this passage and we're going to refer to some previous sermons even leading up to this day. But the Apostle Paul uses the same word twice. You might see it here in the English language. It's the word overcome. Now, in the Greek language, the language of the New Testament, it is a militaristic word. It's a Greek word, nikao. We translate it to overcome. Now, in modern English language, there are certain words that we might use that maybe collectively we would understand is only being used in the context of war. Maybe some words come to mind. Uh, maybe a, you know B-2 bomber. Maybe a weapon of mass destruction. Uh, maybe a assault rifle. You know, we we see or hear these words, and immediately we think of warfare. We think of battle. We think of violent engagement. The word "overcome" in the English language, I think, loses the thrust of its original intent as a militaristic word. You know, we talk about. Uh, Overcoming our fears of sharks. That's one that I have as a surfer here in Los Angeles. Overcoming our fears of of heights. I've got that problem as well. And uh, maybe we need to, you know, overcome, uh, you know, biting our nails. Maybe overcoming other bad habits. We've kind of changed this meaning from its original meaning. And it's essential for us to understand what Paul is actually saying because it changes how we live as followers of Jesus Christ. And so when Paul uses this word, nikao, to overcome, this militaristic word, to not be defeated or overcome by evil, but rather overcome evil with good, he's saying we are in the middle of a war. And in fact, this war that you and I are in as followers of Jesus is the most significant, the most far reaching war in the history of humanity. It's a cosmic war. It's a war that is bigger than the sum total of all the wars that have been waged by every nation, every empire, every coalition, every alliance, because this isn't a physical war, this is a spiritual war. And you, my friend, whether you realize it or not, whether you've put your faith and trust in Jesus or not, you are in the middle of the greatest, most real, most significant war. In fact, the Apostle Paul, some writer of Romans, writes to another community in a town called Ephesus. This is in a, a book that we call Ephesians. And he says this, Ephesians six twelve. This is perhaps familiar for many of you. It says this, For our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul is saying that we are fighting not against people, but against something else. We'll get to that in a moment, but before I do so, we've got to understand that there is, and always has been, a misunderstanding, a misdefinition of what we are fighting against, of what evil truly is. And if we ever succumb to believing that What we are fighting against is other people. In actual fact, in that moment, we become not part of the winning side. We become not part of God's side. We become part of the losing side. We become part of God's enemy's side. And it is very tempting for us to to close this up. To turn on the television. To let the, the words of the world define for us what our enemy truly is, for the world to define for us what truly is the thing that which we are fighting against. And the moment we close this up and close our ears to what God has to say, and the moment we start opening our ears up to everything else that everything else has to say other than God, in actual fact, we find ourselves on the wrong side of the struggle. And perhaps we don't even know it. You know, I think one of the worst things in life is to fight so hard for something only to realize later on that you were fighting for the wrong thing. So in this sermon, as we unpack this one concluding verse of Romans twelve nine through 21, I want to answer two questions what is the evil that we are fighting against? And two, how do we overcome evil with good? Well, so much of Scripture defines that evil, defines that which we are fighting against. Here's just one verse that the Apostle Paul begins to unpack. That section, it's uh, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Maybe you have those Bibles. Maybe you want to flip there right now. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Some of you use a phone. You have a, a Bible app, maybe the version app. Maybe you've got an iPad or a laptop app. We'd love for you to follow along. This is Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. Paul writes this. He's speaking to Christians, and he's talking about their former life before they put their faith and trust in Jesus, which, by the way, by definition, is every single person when they are born. By definition, we are born into this world broken and sinful and aiming for the wrong thing, Scripture says. And there can be a place where we, by choice, put our faith and trust in Jesus as our Lord and Savior. We'll talk about that towards the end of the service. But Paul is speaking to people who they've already made that decision. And he's saying to them, there was something that was true about you, which is also true about me. Before I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He says this, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3. He says, did you know you were dead? You were dead. I mean, though you were physically alive, spiritually, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Why? He says three things that actually summarize the evil that we are fighting against. We'll unpack those. The first is this. Uh, First, you were following the way of this world. In fact, you were following the ruler of the power of the air. In fact, the spirit that is now at work among those who are disobedient. You see, all of us once lived among them in the passions of our flesh, following, this is the third area, following the desires and passions of the flesh. And we were by nature children of wrath like everyone else. So the Apostle Paul is saying that there's something so key here, so important for us to unpack that the great enemy is us when we desire our sinful flesh, is us when we follow the ways of this world, is us when we follow the enemy of God. You see, going back a moment in Ephesians 6, 12, it says, for our struggle. And I love that. He says, our struggle. And I want to key in on this. Paul's speaking to Christians, he's speaking to me and to you and everybody who's listening right now as a follower of Jesus. This is what our struggle is, because there's a lot of struggles that are out there. There's a lot of battles out there. There's a lot of wars out there. There's a lot of things that we can get caught up in and trapped up in. But we've got to understand that there is a higher struggle that is the catalyst for all the other struggles. And we have to understand that we have to struggle against that and fight against that and overcome that because out of the overflow of that war, all the other battles can be won. But when we aim for the lesser battles, the lesser wars, the lesser skirmishes, we aren't struggling with the right thing. Again, Paul says, our struggle. Brothers and sisters in Christ, Let's not forget what the real struggle is. The real battle is. Again, Ephesians 6.12 says, our struggle is not against enemies of blood and flesh. It's not against people. It's not against those people. Whoever those people might be for you. Okay, here's a little litmus test for you. If I was to ask you the question, uh, Uh, What is the biggest problem in the world right now? If a person comes to mind, if a a movement comes to mind, if a political party comes to mind, if an organization comes to mind, if a religion comes to mind, uh, if a particular nation comes to mind, Paul's saying... You're fighting the wrong battle. That's not our struggle as followers of Christ. Our struggle, 6.12, is not against enemies of blood and flesh. It's not against a person, a political party, a movement, a nation, a religion. No, it is against something so much greater, so much more profound, so much more evil against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. This is a spiritual war. And the evil that we are fighting against is the desires and the passions of the flesh, the way of the world, and the enemy of God. I want to unpack these three things and I want to to dive down deep. And actually, I'm going to uh, read some quotes from people. None of them were alive 100 years ago, to remind us that this struggle that we're in as followers of Jesus, the evil that we are actually called to fight against, isn't something new. And we can get so wrapped up in this present moment, whatever that looks like for you and for me, and there are real problems and there are real struggles, but that is the fruit of a bigger struggle, a bigger problem. And Paul says, it starts with this, we follow the desires and the passions of our flesh. What does that mean? You see, this is when our wants and our desires become more important than God's wants and God's desires for our life. This arises when we, we you know, in our mind, in our hearts, in our beliefs, when we ascend to the throne of our lives and we take the rightful place of that which only God, the Son, Jesus Christ can sit. When we make ourselves the Lord of our life, the Savior of our life, the judge, the jury, the executioner for everybody else. You see, in those moments, we become the center of our universe. And we begin to have what Augustine called disordered Love. You know, I love this imagery that he uses. Again, this this great leader in the fourth century. He wrote this, very significant. He says, Living a just and holy life requires one to be capable of an objective and impartial evaluation of things. You see, to love things, that is to say in the right order so that you do not love what is not to be loved or fail to love what is to be loved or have a greater love for what should be loved less or an equal love for things that should be loved less or more. Or a lesser or greater love for things that should be loved equally. In fact, Augustine goes on to say that, that idolatry is disordered love. That when we begin to desire things out of order, whether that's a thing or an experience or a reputation or a person, Out of order from ultimately God in the fullness of only that which God can provide, it is a form of idolatry. And that's just one of the areas. In a long list of 15 different things, the Apostle Paul says are tangible things that describe what desires of the flesh look like. You see, this is the evil that we are fighting against. Listen to this list. This is Galatians 5, 19 through 21. Paul writes, now the works of the flesh, it's not saying the body's bad, but this is when we desire things out of order. The works of the flesh are obvious. Fornication, impurity, licentiousness, idolatry, sorcery, Enmities, strife, jealousy, anger, quarrels, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, carousing, and things like these. You know, I'd love for you to go back to that passage, Galatians 5 19 through 21. And I would love for you to, to read that list and ask yourself, actually ask God the question God, which one of these am I naturally drawn to left to my own devices? You know, I'll share with you, left to my own devices, I am drawn towards idolatry. And I don't mean that I've got little figurines around my house that I bow down and worship to and, you know, burn incense. No, 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 I'm I'm and I don't take gold and turn it into a golden calf in any way. No, it is the perfect definition that Augustine gives when I have disordered love. When I begin to look to my wife, who is amazing, who's this amazing gift from God. And I think that somehow she can do only that which God can do for me. And then I get mad at her for not being uh, the the sum formation of peace, of joy in my life. And in those moments, I actually distort what a gift she is that God is trying to give me because I try to put her in a higher place than she really is. Or if I put my work ahead of my kids... And I think that I've just got to get it done and I've got to do this. And you know, Of course it's for the Lord if I just do that and they'll understand. I, I, I get those things out of order and sometimes work gets in the way of relationships. And when that happens, it's idolatry. In fact, I used to struggle so much and it, uh, it's so aware in my mind that I push against it and I ask people to pray against it. I'm very intentional not to do it, but I used to struggle with just pleasing people. Because somehow that affirmation from people gave me a peace and a security that really only God can give. And the problem when you worship idols, not little figurines, but when you love things out of order. Ultimately, those things get distorted You take a good thing and you try to make it an ultimate thing and it becomes actually a lesser thing in experience. And so Augustine, in so much of his writings, this early leader of the church says that we can push back, we can fight against, we can overcome the evil that begins within us when we realize we have disordered love. Again, answering that question, what is the evil that we are fighting against? There is a spiritual war that is happening when we begin to desire things that are so contrary to what God desires for us. Again, at the end, we're going to talk about how do we overcome evil with good, but let's move to the the second area that we are fighting against, this evil. And again, the Apostle Paul says that when we follow the ways of this world, what does that mean? I love how St. Isaac the Syrian says this. He was a bishop in the 7th century. Again, just to remind us how old, how ancient, how long we've been fighting this battle. He says this. You know, the world, in the Greek, it's the word ion, sometimes translated age. It's it's not the people. It's not the planet. No, 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 it's something else. He says, the world is the general name for all the desires of the flesh put together. When we wish to call the desires of the flesh by a common name, we call them the world. Think worldliness. But when we wish to distinguish them by their special names, we call them the desires of the flesh. They are the love of riches, the desire for possessions, bodily pleasure from which comes sexual passion, Love of honor which gives rise to envy, lust for power, arrogance and pride of position. The craving to adorn oneself with luxurious clothes and vain ornaments. The itch for human glory which is a source of rancor, resentment and physical fear. Paul is saying the same thing that St. Isaac the Syrian is saying. That when we follow our way rather than God's way, when we follow the desires of the flesh, we actually are following the way of this present age, the way of the world. Now, throughout human history and throughout different cultures, throughout human history... There are different value systems. There are different things that society would say, this is what you should strive for. This is what you should aim for. This is what truth is. This is what beauty is. This is what goodness is. This is what justice is. And it's absolutely essential for every person on the planet who wants to follow the way of Jesus to allow scripture to help them to discern between what is the ways of Jesus And what is the ways of the world? In fact, you can trace from beginning to end all throughout scripture that God's people, the moment they forget who God is, the moment they forget their identity, that God says they are, the moment they forget uh, the ways of God, of what it means to be blessed, to be a blessing, to be part of God's people for us as followers of Christ, to be ambassadors for Christ, witnesses to the gospel. The moment we forget that, we begin to co-opt the dominant values, the dominant stories, the dominant worldviews of culture. And so it was different in Babylon It was different in Samaria. It was different in Persia. It's different in Rome, different in Corinth, different in Ephesus, different in all these places. And it's it's very different in the Western world than it is from the Eastern world or in the Southern Hemisphere. But I believe the dominant way of the world right now, 21st century Western world, is the way of consumerism. And it has pervaded so much of our existence. That now you and and me, we're most frequently described as consumers. And we talk about consumer habits. And we talk about consumer confidence. And we talk about consumer trends. And it spills into every industry in existence, sadly, including the church. And there's this very dangerous thing that can happen when we not only follow the desires of our flesh, our ways rather than God's ways, but when we get caught up in a system, a a worldview, a way of life, that pervades every area of our existence. It becomes in direct conflict to the way of Jesus, to the way of God. And in many ways, it is as a society, disordered values and disordered love, as Augustine said. Listen to these uh, passages. St. Macarius the Great, an Egyptian monk in the fourth century. I'm drawn from the history of histories here. says this, whatever a person has loved in the world weighs down their mind and holds it down and will not let them come up. The Apostle John says it's love of the world or it's love for God. There's one or the other. There's no middle ground. There's no having both. He says it this way in 1 John 2.15, he says, do not love the world or the things in the world. The love of the Father is not in those who love the world. And what he's not saying is for those that love people or the place, he's not talking about that. He's talking about if you get caught up in a way of living that has defined everything in life contrary to how God has defined it, a different definition of truth, of justice, of beauty, of value, of fairness, of equality of family, of community, on and on and on. That if we define things differently than how God is defined, we actually get caught up in the way of the world. And again, the apostle Paul says that when we follow the way of the world, we are actually being overcome by evil. We are perpetuating the brokenness in society. Paul says, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. So finally, as we ask that first question, what is the evil we are fighting against? Again, first it was following the desires and passion of our flesh. Second, it's following the ways of the world. The third is following the enemy of God. Now God's enemy has gone by many different names throughout Scripture. It's come in many different forms. We see all the way back in Genesis 3, all the way through in the book of Revelation, God's enemy. Isaiah says that there was uh, this one who so longed to be equal with God. Isaiah 14, 12 through 15 says this, how you have fallen from heaven O day star, son of dawn, how you are cut down to the ground. You who laid the nations low, you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the Mount of Assembly on the heights of Zaphon. I will ascend to the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you, speaking to God's enemy, you are brought down to Sheol to the depths of the pit. In fact, like I said, that first mention of God's enemies in Genesis 3 where in the form of a serpent comes to the first humans and convinces them God doesn't know what God's talking about. You can't trust God. You don't need to desire what God has given you, which was this amazing existence right relationship with God, with each other, with yourselves, with all of creation. You know, yeah, did God really say you should eat from every tree of the garden and the first humans? They, they saw the one thing, the one tree that God set apart as something that wasn't for them, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it says in Genesis 3 that they saw with their eyes that the fruit of that tree was to be desired, That was the beginning of the experience of evil within humanity. The desire of the flesh. And it began to unravel. And it began this worldliness that has had a domino effect all throughout human history. God's enemy is described as the ruler of this age the god of this age if there is a way of god that has a king upon it there's a way of this world that has a prince upon it and again paul said in that ephesians passage the ruler the prince of the power of the air you see there's many passages that unpack who this enemy is this one who as peter says roams around like a lion, looking to devour its prey. In 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says this, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel, of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. There is this blindness. There is this inability to see that which is from God. And that comes from the ruler of this air, the ruler of the sage, this one who masquerades as an angel of light. You see, God's enemy's strategy isn't to convince us that bad things are good. No, I, I think it's to convince us that the fake things, the counterfeit things, the distorted things, the shadow things are real. And in many ways, there is this deep, profound, behind the scenes work that God's enemy does. But also it seems like as I read scripture and as I look out upon the world and as I've just spent time in prayer about this and, you know, C.S. Lewis's writings in the screw Tape Letters really opened my eyes to this as well. I think that we, when we fall into following the desires of our flesh and following the ways of this world, God's enemy doesn't have to do that much other than sit back and just delight and say, ha, ha, I don't have much more to do. People are so wrapped up in themselves, thinking they're right in the ways of this world. And yet there is this behind the scenes, not more powerful than we should think, not less powerful than we should think, but a very real enemy of God. You know, some people, I think, overestimate the power of God's enemy. And they they walk around with fear. They, you know, they get a cold and they think it's from the devil. Uh, You know, they think that everything is out to get them. And there's some who maybe completely underestimate, who are completely ambivalent, uh, uh, unknowing to the fact that there is an enemy of God. I I find that when I look back on my life, I fall into the second category. I don't know why. I don't know if it's a where I was raised, when I was raised, uh, particular uh, church settings that I was in. We we just didn't talk about Satan or the devil, really at all. You know, and I'd see movies and, you know, there'd be uh, mentions of the devil and I I was, that's not real, that's not real, that's not real. But then I had a couple encounters and I'm so hesitant to even tell this story. And I've shared this with our church family before. You know, and I and I pray that you would hear this with the intent that I have behind my heart just to give you what I believe is a biblical definition, a right context for the reality of God's enemy, but at the same time, the weakness of God's enemy. So, gosh, about 10 years ago, I was uh, in... Uganda, the second time I had been there, and I was there leading a trip with a group of high school students. A group of adults were there for two weeks. Amazing experience. We were serving with some amazing followers of Jesus there, people I look up to, respect so much, who are so passionate about the gospel, sharing their faith, serving in such profound ways. I, I found that going on those trips, I learned so much more than I think I taught from my brothers and sisters in Christ. So eye opening, so amazing. But there was one day, where we were going. Through this this village, now this village happened to be, we found it in advance, the centerpiece, the the hotspot, the hub of witchcraft in eastern Africa. People would literally, they would pilgrimage to this spot, to this place, and they would visit a witch doctor who was renowned, who had been there for decades and there was this heaviness, I don't know how to describe it. There was just this heaviness as we walked through this village. And, and when I say village, if you've ever been to uh, a slum in parts of the world where maybe village is, is not the right word to use. I mean, this this was, it was heartbreaking to see in a physical sense how these people were living all people made in the image of God, whom God loves so much. And the complications of poverty or for another day, but they were living there. And as we were going door to door to share the gospel, to share our faith through translators, we were going, we had been asked by a church to go with them to do this. We had trained high school students to show their faith. And so as we went from one house to another, and by house, I mean lean-to, a structure of garbage that people were living in and i remember as we were going from one spot to another to share the gospel there was a woman who came down off this hill and and i don't know how to describe it other than she seemed completely overwhelmed with grief, completely overwhelmed with affliction, uh, completely overwhelmed with something that was so much more than physical, something so much more than was economical, something so much more than psychological. It it was this spiritual oppression. And she had a, a, a crucifix you know, a, a cross with, with Jesus on it, wearing this. And so at first I'm thinking, what, what is, is, is she a believer or not? And she, and she introduced herself as Mother Teresa. And, and she was saying some things and we, and it became this whole commotion and then she started walking with us to the next spot. Kind of the short of the story is as we were there in this circle sharing our faith, there was this really mature Upper upperclassman in high school named Claire who was sharing her faith with a, a young woman named Rose. I can't believe I still remember her name in, the, in this community. And as she was sharing her faith, she got to that passage in Matthew, a passage that perhaps many of you know. Uh, Do not worry about tomorrow because tomorrow has enough trouble of its own, but seek first God's kingdom and God's righteousness and all these things will be added to you as well. And so as Claire is sharing this with Rose, Mother Teresa, she starts shouting, And she started saying, no, no, don't trust God. You can't trust God. God is not trustworthy. And it became this interrupted, Claire, and there was this, and everybody had no idea what to do. And the translators are speaking in in Luganda in the local language, trying to, to quell this down. And in that moment, I began to pray. And I didn't pray out loud. I prayed in my heart and in my mind. I was a little scared, and I just began to pray, God, would you give Claire, the wisdom? Would you give Claire the the strength? Would you give Claire the peace? And as as I was praying that, immediately, Mother Teresa looked at me. I'm praying in my mind, not out loud, in my mind. I'm not saying it out loud. And she looks at me and she starts saying my name. Now, let me tell you, whenever I am in a foreign country where English isn't the first language, I introduce myself as Andrew. Not Drew. For some reason, I've had this wherever I've traveled. People have a a much easier time saying Andrew than Drew. And so she's saying, Andrew, 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 out loud. And I'm praying quietly. And the louder she gets, the louder in my mind and the more fervent in prayer I get. And she gets louder and louder yelling, Andrew, I mean, so loud. I'm thinking, how on earth is Claire still sharing her faith? And I'm just praying, I'm praying, I'm praying, I'm praying. And it gets so loud that she is just shouting, Andrew, Andrew. And forgive me, and this is where, you know, I'm hesitant to tell this story, but I'm going to be honest with you. I prayed, and I'm not proud of this prayer, but I prayed in my heart, and my mind. I said, God, would you shut her the hell up? And I normally don't pray that. And I know I'm in the pulpit. Some of you, maybe are offended by that. Don't get offended by that. But I'm telling you, in that moment, I prayed that prayer out of desperation, uh, in courage and in boldness. And in that moment, she looked across and she changed the name that she was saying. And she looked across. And when she spoke this name, it was as if all the sky that was blue and technicolor above me went black and white. When she spoke, now this new name, not Andrew, this new name, it was as if all the oxygen on planet Earth was sucked into a vacuum. And immediately there wasn't the physical realm only. I had an experience of a deeper war, a deeper reality, a deeper evil. When she yelled,
1: David,
0: which is my legal name. The name given to me by my parents. On my birth certificate, on my driver's license, David, Andrew, Sam's. Nobody calls me David. I was referred to as Drew even before I was born because my dad's name is David. How could she know that my name was David? None of the students knew that my name was David. No one knew my name was David, but she knew David. And in that moment, I stepped forward and I began to pray in the name of Jesus a name that has defeated death, a name that has defeated Satan, that she would be covered in the blood of Jesus, that we would be protected because of the victory that is in Christ, that in that moment that there would be nothing that would shake us, there would be nothing that would get in the way of God's love for us. And I began to pray and she began to yell curses in the name of Satan against me and against us. And it was war. And I just kept praying and immediately it began to dissipate and she screamed and she went off running. And the color came back in the sky and the oxygen came back and Claire looks at me and she says, Drew, what should I do? And I said, keep sharing your faith. And Claire kept sharing the gospel of Jesus with Rose. Rose. And on that day, Rose gave her life to Jesus Christ. And years later, I found out that Rose was still a follower of Jesus. She was a leader in the church. There was amazing transformation that happened that day. But before we get in the future, let's go back to that moment. Because as we walked away from that house, my heart was heavy. And as we got back to the church in that beautiful village, we heard another story, another intense story, maybe a story for another day. of something else that happened with another group of leaders, with students from the, the church, the, the ministry, the high school group that I was overseeing for the church that I had come from before I came here to Bel Air. And we sat down, we're sharing these stories and it was just so intense. And I remember sharing with those students and the leaders that day and I said, I'm sorry. because I prepared you in every single area, except for one. I prepared you for how to travel internationally. We talked a lot about how to pack and and what to wear and how to stay healthy. You know, I I prepared you with our team and with the leaders for the culture here so that we would be culturally appropriate and understand and come alongside, not as Westerners domineering. Uh, I trained you on how to share your faith. I trained you how to do all the things, but what I didn't train you to do was how to enter into spiritual warfare. And I remember in that little tiny church, opening up God's Word, being reminded on that day, which I am sharing with you today, the evil that which we are actually fighting against. And I shared, and I said this, You know, Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.10, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his power. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Again, for our struggles, not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers of this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. But it goes on, Therefore, Okay, we're at war. It's a spiritual war, not a physical. We are at war. This is our struggle. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God so that you may be able to withstand on that evil day. And having done everything to stand firm, stand therefore and fasten the belt of truth around your waist and put on the breastplate of righteousness as shoes for your feet. Put on whatever will make you ready to proclaim the gospel of peace. With all of these, take the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the flaming arrows of the evil one. And take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God." And I shared with the students that day that we weren't prepared to enter into the warfare, the spiritual warfare. And then I remember one of the leaders there, the pastors there, that church, God Cares, in Kampala, Uganda, he said this, but remember my sisters and brothers, the victory is already won. The victory is already won, he said. The victory is already won. And something clicked in me. And I look back on that moment and I realized that that was the beginning of a new reality that had always been there in Scripture, but I hadn't yet really understood. You see, often in physical battles, we talk about this idea of, you know, onward to victory. You've got to fight for victory. But the truth of what Scripture says, and this is answering the second question, how will we overcome evil with good, is to flip onward to victory and realize that as Christians, it is victory to onward. You see, there is a victory that has already been won. There is a fight that has already been won. There is a war that has already been won. And it wasn't won by you. It wasn't won by me. It was won by Jesus Christ who lived the perfect life, who went to the cross by choice, not as a victim, but victorious and defeating death, resurrecting from the grave, not only defeated, scripture says, death, but I love this. It says that when he was crucified, the desires of our flesh, in Galatians says, were nailed to the cross with him. And it goes on to say that Jesus actually, in John 16, and this is the sermon for next week, that Jesus overcame even the world's systems, the way of the world, even Jesus defeated that. Even more so, Scripture says that Jesus has already won the victory against God's enemy. So that pastor on that day... I want you to hear what he has to say because it's the truth of what Scripture says and it's how we can overcome evil. We don't do it by doing good deeds on ourselves. We harness, we believe in, we have faith in and it's such a mystery sometimes. The fact that the victory has already been won and now we live onward in the fruit, in the reality of that victory. Listen to this passage. This is 1 Corinthians 15, 57 and 58. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, therefore, after the victory that we have in Christ, who has defeated death, who has crucified our sinful desires in the flesh, who has defeated even and overcome this worldly systems, who has defeated even the devil. Therefore, my beloved, be steadfast, immovable, Always excelling in the work of the Lord because you know that in the Lord, your labor, the work you do, the spiritual warfare you do is not in vain. In fact, Galatians 5.26 says this, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You see, when you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, The disordered love is buried with Jesus after it's been crucified with him. And in the same way Jesus was buried and was risen from the grave, you too and I too are now raised to new life. We have a new identity in Christ. We have a new purpose for life. And I love how in Psalm 37, 4, it says this, that now if we delight ourselves in the Lord, then God will give us the desires of our flesh and the desires of our heart. And I used to think a long time ago, oh, if I just delight in God, He'll give me what I want. No, 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 no. You see, when you begin to delight in the Lord, when you begin to immerse your life in God's Word, when you begin to put into practice the way of Jesus, when you spend time in prayer, when you spend time singing worship and praise to God, when you spend time in Christ-centered community, When you delight yourself in the Lord, your desires change. And the former things that you used to desire that actually propped up the ways of this world which the enemy of God delighted in, now are new desires that prop up the kingdom of God, that advance the way of Jesus that caused the delight of the maker of heaven and earth, your creator, your savior, your king, your prince of peace, your redeemer. Our struggle, we've got to remember what our struggle is. Let's not let the world distract us from the real problem. And the problem is sin. And we have an opportunity to take ownership of the desires of our flesh to continue to put it to death through faith and trust in Jesus, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And we can begin to identify the ways of the world that are contrary to God's heart. And we can aim for God's kingdom and God's righteousness here on earth as it is in heaven. And one day, a future day, The fullness of the experience of the victory that has already been won in Jesus will be ours to experience. You see, we live in this in-between time. The victory is won, but the ramifications have not yet fully been experienced. You know, you hear stories of people who, maybe at the end of World War II, had been in prisoner of war camps, detention camps, concentration camps, A victory had been won. This is a physical war here that I'm talking about, but a great parallel. A physical war had been won. There was victory. It was clear. It was on the newspapers. And yet there was prisoners still in prison. There was people who had been so used to being entrapped, detained, detained, That even when the victors came to bring them out of bondage, to bring them out of those concentration camps, some of them refused to believe that the war had been won. And it starts with belief. And out of that belief, action follows. Because for the few that didn't believe that the war had been won, They refused to leave at first those camps, those prisons. Scripture says, not my opinion, Scripture says the war has been won by Jesus Christ. Would you choose to believe that victory is in Christ? and out of the overflow of that victory that you can step into that belief and now have your life live and walk not by your selfish desires but by the fruit of the spirit. We'll talk about that next week. But in the meantime, let's be reminded. We war not against enemies of flesh and blood, but something so much greater. Spiritually within, in our society, ultimately God's enemy. Let's overcome evil with good through faith and trust in Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you that you have defeated death, that you are our great victor. And Jesus, I thank you, as it says in 1 Corinthians, that you lead us as your followers in triumphal procession, present tense. So may we move out in this world, God, triumphant, not with an arrogance that comes from us winning, but through a humble courage that comes from the fact that you have defeated the brokenness in us. And at the same time, you have lifted us up and invited us to be part of your kingdom come here on earth as it is in heaven. May we be ambassadors for peace, Jesus. May we follow you, Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. It's in your name we pray and we say together, amen.